Hello again, friends, and welcome to Access City Hall on the Madison City Channel. I'm your host, Stu Levitan. Like all municipalities, the city of Madison spends lots of time and money to protect our health and safety. We've got police and fire departments, the health department, workers to pick up our garbage and plow our streets. But the city also attends to our welfare, our emotional, physical, even spiritual welfare, by providing places to play and be with nature. That's why they call it recreation, because it is a way to recreate ourselves. Well, landscape architect and urban planner John Nolan published Madison, a model city in 1911, he included a series of recommendations he said were of supreme importance for the future of Madison. Item 12 was to organize the park work of Madison under new park law. Well, it took a while, but on May 8, 1931, Madison enacted a charter ordinance creating the Board of Parks Commissioners. A few months shy of 84 years later, the board oversees a $15 million operation encompassing 6,000 acres of parks and open space, about 270 parks, four golf courses, 13 beaches, the Old Brick Botanical Gardens, Warner Park Community <coughs> Recreation Center, the Goodman Pool, State Street Mall Capital Concourse, hiking trails, nature trails, wetlands, dog parks, community gardens, tennis courts, boat launches, sand volleyball courts, soccer and softball fields, and when all is said and done, the Forest Hills Cemetery. Here to talk about Madison's parks and recreational activities are Parks Superintendent Eric Knepp and the President of the Board of Parks Commissioners, David Wallner. Gentlemen, thanks very much for being with us tonight. It's good to be back. It, it's the middle of February. It's bitterly cold. When you were at work today, Eric, what season were you dealing with? Um, well, Stu, uh, we kind of, we're, we're, we're kind of dealing with all seasons all the time, but right now what we're thinking about a lot is uh, spring, and we're thinking about um, what's going to happen when the ground starts to thaw, which is actually only a couple weeks away uh, on average. Um, that transition period is, uh, is a very sensitive time for the, a lot of our environmentally sensitive areas, and we want to make sure to take care of that. But we're really focused on getting our Goodman Pool swim lesson program uh, registration started up. That will happen in, in the 1st of March. Uh, very, uh, very excited about that. Very excited about working with MSCR uh, from the school district and their adult recreation components in our parks over the summer. Uh, so really busy setting the program schedule for the summer months at this point. I, w I was reading the minutes from December, and the December minutes note that it got really cold really early and you were put into winter mode earlier than normal. The February report from the December and January period notes how warm it has been and, and the damage that had done to the ice skating rinks and the cross-country skiing conditions had been really poor, but at least you didn't have to do that much plowing. So much of your operations are outside your control. How do, how do you plan for contingencies when so much of your activity is weather dependent? Well, Eric, prep probably answer that better than I can. I'm still in winter mode. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm, one of the things I'm really impressed about with the park system the last few years is even in winter, there are lots of things going on in the park system. Um, I live near Tenney Park. There is a, a Grooven, what's called Grooven Glide event this weekend where um, there'll be like a big skating party. Next week, there is a the park system. People come out and they set up a big screen and show a movie, hot chocolate for kids and families. It's a big, two big skating parties coming up at Tenney. Um, the UW women's hockey team was out yeah. at Vilas doing a, a skating clinics for kids and adults a few weeks ago. 
uh, Warner Park, where I spent a lot of time at the rec center. Uh, the new director is doing family, Jacob Tissues is named, doing family fun nights. And I was out there in December, and the, whole, the place was packed on a Friday night with a cold, bitter night with all these kids and families coming in. And they had a bounce house set up. They had free movies, popcorn. Um, I think there's another one. There's a beach. They're doing a beach party yep. in March where you dress up in beach gear, costumes. You come in and hang out in the in the rec center. So the system does a tremendous, uh, you know, I was at a Friends of Olin Turville uh, skiing event two weeks ago. Um, not sponsored by the system, but it was a volunteer organization. And they had uh, hundreds of people were out there at night to cross-country ski, to hike. They had a drum circle, a huge bonfire. Um, staff went out and groomed the trails, you know, before the event. So there, there's lots of great winter activities still going on. And, you know, Eric's got to deal with all the, you know, what six months down the road <laughs> stuff. But yeah. and, the, and the weather, the weather yeah. dependency is obviously a difficulty. Or the weather fluctuation, um, and this November was anybody who was here, right? November was very cold. I don't know how cold on record, but it's it, it was down there. Mm-hmm. December warmed back up, and so we lost a lot of that traction on ice. We ended up getting our ice up and running in, in that Christmas break period, which we really desire. And the ice season's been pretty good, a little fluctuating here and there. Um, <clears throat> Cross country ski trails are dependent on nature as well. We haven't had as many days of of highly um, high-value snow, but when we've had it, it's worked uh, pretty well, and a lot of people love it. That's a passionate user group. When it snows, they're there. Um, and so how do we handle that? What happens when it doesn't? People might ask that question. Uh, right now, the unfortunate menace that we face is emerald ash borer, and so a lot of our parks maintenance staff in these winter months are working on uh, preemptive removals and uh, of ash trees that aren't going to be treatable in that environment. And so that's a focus right now. But we always just try to have work that takes us one direction if the weather's doing this. Like in the summer, mm-hmm. if it's a uh, wetter summer, we've got to mow a lot. If it's a drier summer, we don't have to mow as much. But now we go out and water the trees we plant elsewhere because it's not wet. If you read the minutes, you can actually see people talking about, well, we were watching the grass grow. (laughs) I love the staff supervisor reports. Well, it's been pretty darn cold the last few weeks. And they're very, very poetic. And and, and the leaves are blowing in, and it's it's so colorful. Uh, We we will get to the emerald ash borer in a little bit, but but on the point of cross-country trails, I I, uh, invited questions on, on the Isthmus Daily Page forum, and somebody wanted to know about um, preparing and grooming Nordic trails uh, at perhaps Elvert, some sort of comprehensive uh, additional trail activity um, for cross-country skiing. Gotcha. Well, the, um, that may have been, I'm not sure the exact nature, because there's two, there's Nordic class, Nordic is yeah. classic cross-country skiing, and then there's <laughs> skate skiing. Uh, and the way we're managing grooming for those two different activities is that our fee areas um, uh, which are Elver, Odana, Hills Golf Course, and Yahari Hills Golf Course. We'll talk about golf mm-hmm. in a little bit. Those golf courses aren't just land in, that are valued in the summer. They also have a very high value in the winter, too, mm-hmm. for folks to recreate. On those trails, we groom when the weather conditions permit and the snow permits three to four times a week. And at Elver, we also partner with Mad, Nor- Mad Norski as a group. Mm-hmm. They assist with some grooming, so we groom very frequently, and we groom for both activities. One of the things that we've uh, adjusted to try to make those should make sure those things are groomed the right way in those higher value when we charge a fee is we we used to kind of be sporadic at the non-fee areas which we have a number of that we groom 
less frequently, one to two times per week during the season, and we generally just groom those as Nordic skier classic. So sometimes we get concerns from, from skate skiers. The issue with that is grooming skate skis at uh, Monona Golf Course or Owen where you don't need a pass is pretty expensive. There's a specialized piece of equipment you have to move around. So I'm not sure if that was the, the, the question because, honestly, if, if there's a concern about uh, – I would hope uh, most people who have been out to Elver see that it's very active. And I guess I should say the other thing that has come up in the past to maybe answer that person's question is why don't you make snow when we don't have it? Because we do have a snowmaking gun. Uh, we use that to supplement for crossing through skis and for sledding out there. Uh, the issue with that is pretty simple. <coughs> if nature didn't make snow, most of the time we shouldn't either. Uh, it's really a supplementary thing. And like in December, there's a question, why aren't you making snow? Well, because it's 45. Uh, <laughs> 45 is not – we may make the snow, and it's really wasteful of the water. Do you know how many people <clears throat> use the various – cross-country trails over the course of the season? Uh, we know that uh, with regard to the, the passes we sell, uh, we sell about uh, 1,900 annual passes, uh, unlimited, for those three fee areas. And then on daily passes, it, it does obviously depend completely on the weather. Winter, a couple of years ago, the 11-12 winter, we didn't sell very many. It was very, very mild, very, very warm, little snow. But uh, we, we, we see about 5,000 more paid visits on a daily basis. Uh, and those 1,900 people who get by the annuals um, are there a lot. So as far as actual user counts, I, I would put it at upwards of 20,000 on the paid trails uh, uses in a, in a season fairly easily. And I think at the non, non-paid trails, it's very high. I live very close to Owen Park, and I see a lot of people using those trails. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about uh, some of the big-ticket items the biggest uh, of which is the Garver feed mill. Um, there's a, an RFP, a request for proposals, that has come back. For people who are just joining us mid-controversy, the Garver sugar, the, the, the sugar beet factory of um, Magnus Swenson opened in 1905 on Sugar Avenue on the uh, east side behind Olbrick Park, Olbrick uh, Gardens, and... Um, uh, was for it's an industrial Romanesque <coughs> building. Was for many years one of the, the great sugar beet extractor factories. It has since fallen into disrepair. If you guys don't do something with it in a hurry, the Landmarks Commission is going to sue you for 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 degradation of <laughs> a land. Notes. You better be. This is on tape. This is a de- for degradation of a landmark facility. Uh, in 2011, a couple of years ago, the Commonwealth Development Corporation had a plan to turn it into an arcs incubator. The economy collapsed. Uh, they couldn't get financing. It went back to default ground zero. Now there have been uh, four proposals to make use of the 60,000 square feet building and the adjoining lands. Um, there's a proposal from the Alexander Company. Well, first let me let me give the the, the context of the proposals um, that people are supposed to meet. It's supposed to you're, you're, you're grading the proposals on the following categ- uh, criteria. It has to be visionary, a visionary proposal that captures the community's imagination for the rehab and adaptive reuse. It has to be context sensitive, uh, sensitive to the surrounding residential neighborhood, the North Platte and the garden. Sustainable uh, preservation, development, use, and maintenance should uh, achieve LEED certification and be sustainable or use other metrics. Multimodal in terms of minimizing parking impact, uh, a destination to complement Old Brick Botanical Gardens, 
responsive to Ulbricht's needs for 14,000 square feet of storage space and financially strong. The city will um, provide no more than $1.8 million um, and uh, the proposal has to stand uh, on its own after that. You got four proposals, one from the Alexander Company for an event center with a grand lobby with uh, floating glass lobby and, and, and arts. Uh, something from the Ogden Company for uh, 200 rental units of housing, a proposal from the Alternative Continuum of Care for an elderly housing community, and something from Baum Development for an artisanal food production facility, uh, which seems to be very similar to some of the public market um, activities that, that the city has been talking about. That's a brief recap of, of the proposals. Where does the review process stand and where does it go from here? Well, as chair of that committee, I hope you don't sue me. <laughs> I'm an old retired guy on fixed income and, and social security. You're anyway, a pensioner. Yeah, yeah, I'm a pensioner, an ex-old teacher. Um, we, are, we started meeting about six months ago. We created the criteria. Um, we, had our, we got the proposals in at the end of December, as you mentioned, the four. Very diverse, interesting mix of ideas. Um, we, have, we held a public hearing a couple of weeks ago with the developers who all came in and did their dog and pony shows. We have a public hearing coming up next week on Thursday on the 26th where the public will respond to those four proposals. Um, we'll also have a, a new staff financials, quote unquote, um, response to the four ideas. And... Then in March, we're meeting, I believe it's the 18th, hopefully by then, um, let me back up a little bit, after the meeting on the 26th, the committee of six people will review the proposals, fill in their criteria, send them to the staff, they'll calculate them, and then we'll try to knock out a, you know, we'll try to pick the final winner uh, on March 18th. That's our plan. And is we the Board of Parks Commissioners, is, or is we, who is we? It's a site that we, a <clears throat> committee was created through the Mayor's Office and the Council of uh, originally seven people. We're down to six now. Includes three alders, uh, myself as the President of the Parks Commission, and two other citizen members. And like I say, we've been meeting since this <clears throat> last summer. We took a three-month hiatus during the proposal phase waiting for the proposals to come in. I'm real optimistic we're going to get we're going to get a really good uh, option by the time we, you know, tour. It's, it's going to be really tough. Um, there are two that are, as you said, related to housing, senior, memory care. Um, one that's private sector housing, and then you've got the Alexander event meeting space and the bomb proposal for the food combination of commercial, uh, retail, and food preparation. Um, then we have to deal with the North Platte, which is the, about, what is it, 20 acres there? Yeah. Beyond the building to the north, which has been used primarily as, I suppose, a dog park, walking area. What do we do with this really large park space behind the building? So once we get the you know, developer chosen and, and move on, um, we have to decide, you know, find the funding and what do we do with the open space behind it, which is potentially beautiful park space. We say find the funding. Isn't the 1.8 million already that's secured? For the, that's for the building. That's for the whoever gets okay. the you know that money is available for. Um, also includes about 800,000. I think of that as earmarked for storage space for Olbrick. 
not, not that I'm attempting to influence your deliberations. Go ahead. But I'm a citizen. <laughs> I'm allowed to speak. The, the, the proposal that really jumps out as being visionary and um, uh, destination specific and and a lot of uh, variables for it is is the Baum project for the the artisanal food production. Mm-hmm. Is the issue is the fact that the city is also considering a public market that seems to have some overlap of functions? Does that become an issue in your deliberations? I, ra- I mean, I, I raised that question with the Baum people and with staff oh, a month or more ago. Um, they are claiming that it will not be a conflict, that the market will be a different animal, um, that they might complement each other in some way. I'm not quite sure yet. Um, the other issue there is that they've got a very kind of elaborate plan for developing the area, you know, behind the North Platte that we call it, orchards, community gardens. That will all have to come back to the commission, staff, you know, revisions, um, neighborhood input. So I think that, to be honest with you, I think that's the one we've heard the most about from the neighborhood the, is the bomb proposal. Um, I think there's, you know, the lobbying that's been done early. Um, you know, his favorite in terms of numbers of people, that proposal. Will it conflict with the public market idea, Eric? I don't... Yeah, I mean, and the the <coughs> bomb group has said that they've, you know, they feel very strong that it doesn't. And I think a, a cursory review uh, of their plan and what they what they see as the, the production facility, it's really production-oriented, not retail-oriented, yeah. not really meant to draw in the public, and really that's that's one half of their proposal. The other half that focuses on the, the micro lodges, a lot of it's to try to create as much activity in a balanced way that doesn't drive large amounts of traffic in and out either. Um, I, having not been directly involved in the public market, but you know, involved in some of the stuff of siting and the proximity to potential parks and such as that, I do think the public market seems to be focused pretty heavily on the uh, the retail side. And so I think that's the argument. And as the commission, or the, well, the committee, and then all the city committees and commissions that we'll see it after that, landmarks included, uh, you know, that will be a part of the approval. I, I suspect that'll come up a lot, and I think it's a good, fair question. Oh, that's right. Mm-hmm. I probably shouldn't have anything to say on this. Yet. <laughs> <laughs> I got myself. I didn't want to bring that up. <laughs> <Thank you. laughs> Is there a conflict of interest? Nah, no, no, no. I'm a citizen. We're talking. We got to take a break. <laughs> We're talking with David Walner, the president of the Board of Parks Commissioners, and Eric Nepp, the Superintendent of the Parks, Depo- Parks Division. We're going to take a short break and we'll be back with more. It's Access City Hall on the Mass and City Channel. Please stay with us. If I ride, I will know the way the trees smell after the rain. I will grow a heart so strong that hospitals will take Tuesdays off. If I ride uphill, I will eventually get to ride downhill. That's how it works. If I ride, my breath will fill the air instead of smoke and car exhaust. If I ride, road rage will turn into laughter. And I won't be a boy or a girl. I will just be a rider. If I ride, I will be strong.
This close. Yeah, this close. Two this close to making history. Up on one city, one city. We are this close. We are this close. We are this close. This close to changing the world. We are this close to making sure no child suffers a crippling disease ever again. We are this close to making history. We are this close to ending polio. Because we are this close to ending polio. We are this close to ending polio. We are this close to changing the world. This close. I mean, we need you. It's you. It's you. It's you. We are this close. This close. Be a part of history at rotary.org slash end polio. Welcome back to Access City Hall for March 2015. I'm still Stu. You're still you. We're still talking with Dave Walner, the president of the Board of Parks Commissioners, and Eric Knapp, the superintendent of the Parks Division. Uh, let's wrap up just a little more uh, bit about... Garver and, and the prospects for um, getting something done before we move on. It's interesting that you've got four proposals and none of them really overlap each other. Is, does that surprise you that you have four discernible, distinct, different proposals? I think, it, for me, the word was pleased because, you know, they weren't all housing. Um, when we threw the line out there a few months back, we didn't know if we'd get any serious proposals. And to get four that um, our staff analysis says that they probably all can work financially. They've, you know, there are always risks involved, but um, I was very pleased that we had that kind of op those kinds of options. And this can be a tough decision. Um, you know, we've got another month to go before we'll make our our final pick. But yeah, it's it's been a really good process, I think. And now, when you say make our final pick, is the is is your select ad hoc committee the decider or Ultimately, they just have to go to the Board of Estimates and the Common Council for, for their ratification. For the lease, uh, yeah, we'll go up the line. The Parks Commission will deal with it. Uh, as Eric mentioned, it'll go to landmarks, planning, <clears throat> for all those issues related to zoning and um, preservation. But, you know, once our committee makes a decision, especially with three alders, including the neighborhood alders, um, we think it'll have a good chance of moving on. And, and you expect a decision when? Um, March 18th is what is set up now as our final meeting. Public hearing on the uh, next Thursday, the 26th. Um, I forget where it's okay. at. Well, it's okay because this will air in yeah. March. So anything, okay. anything that happens on February 26th. We want to be done because yeah. another another yeah. winter or two of you know that building isn't going to survive much longer. That's why we're going to have to sue you if you don't get it done. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, it's been a long slog, yeah. as you know. Uh, okay. Well, then moving on um, to... Uh, the specter that is haunting the 21,700 publicly owned ash trees in the city of Madison, the emerald ash borer. There is disheartening news. It is not, the emerald ash borer has now been found in Doncaster Park, which I have to tell you isn't really a park. It's a little green space to the side of a gas station along Midvale Boulevard. But the operative fact is it's three blocks from my house, and I am now worried. Um, let's talk about... How, how can we blame the Chinese for the fact that the emerald ash borer is here? It's better than blaming Eric. Or well, blame the Chinese <laughs> because the apparently it came over in some packing that showed up in Michigan yeah, and then I think so. migrated right? over. Yes. 
so we've got 21,000 street trees plus lots of privately owned trees. How much are they at risk? Um, an ash tree untreated uh, is the emerald ash borers um, a, a small pest. It's an it's a sub-Siberian uh, pest. It did come over from China in about 2002. Its mortality rate on North American ash, which our most common two species of ash in this community and most of the upper Midwest are a white ash or a, a green ash. Uh, the mortality rate of exposed, untreated to this uh, uh, menace is 100%. There is no chance that a tree will survive untreated uh, with this in the community. Any ash tree will die uh, and will become a danger because the, what happens is the, the infestation is they lay their eggs in the in the vascular tissue of the tree in the structure of the trunk <coughs> and when they leave you're breaking down that structure and it, which means the upper portions of the tree start to die first uh, and they become brittle, brittle and fallen cars and or fall. people <coughs> so it's a very dangerous thing and um, one of the things I would just say right at the top is the 21,000 on the street trees we're taking care of we also have thousands more in parks mm -hmm. uh, you got thousands so, in the golf courses yes Tenney Park is what, uh, four or five hundred? Tenney Park is about four hundred fifty. Just in that little part, it's small. It's a, it's very high, and part of it's because ash was mm -hmm. uh, a replacement for Dutch elm. Mm -hmm. uh, Dutch elm disease took a lot of our elms, and ash grows very well on the terrace, so we put ash in. We've got a better strategy now, but the biggest thing for homeowners is if you go to our website, we have a number of. Uh, 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 there's an Emerald Ashbore website on the City of Madison webpage, also off the Parks webpage. It's got a number of tools for homeowners to tell you about potential treatment options that uh, that include uh, city con contractors who have worked with the city and are bonded to the city uh, that we feel are very high quality. Uh, we always recommend working with a, a trained and certified arborist on any tree care. And it also gives there's a decision guide that can help you identify maybe if you have an ash or not. And that's the first step to know. Well, there are these, these wonderful interactive maps where they show you where the trees oh, are. Um, I've got two ash trees in the terrace in front of my house. They are spectacular. They yeah, yeah. Come, come October, November, they are ablaze with color. They are in the terrace. Are you going to look after them? Do I have to do something? What's, what's the deal? The terrace trees the city of Madison will take care of. Uh, the first question is going to be um, whether or not we're going to treat those trees. We're inspecting, and in fact, your, your trees uh, in front of your home uh, will be inspected very shortly once we get leaf out, leaf out which is May uh, we like to inspect them with leaf out because we need to make sure that they meet our treatment criteria for a street tree which is uh, the treatment criteria is greater than 10 inches got it of diameter at breast height yep um, that it is not under uh, uh, power, line. power lines or nope. voltage lines it's clear and that it's in a uh, that it's in a state of decline at less than 30 percent because most trees like all humans, yeah. all trees like all humans, yeah. are in a state of decline. Uh, we're all. Is he talking about us? Uh, well, <laughs> I've uh, noticed me, that lately. Me, everybody, we're all we're all in a we're all in that state yeah. of toward, closer to the end, and it's a natural process. Yeah. Uh, so trees that are closer to the end than not, we we don't feel it's a good investment of the city resources mm -hmm. to treat those trees. But so 30% decline. If you talk about a very vibrant, big tree that's mm -hmm. still displaying lots of color. Uh, that's a very good sign. Yeah. And we'll inspect them with leaf out so we can really see how they're leafing out. You'll probably know before we will when you see the leaves coming out. The leaves are everywhere yeah. uh, on the tree. That's good. And the last thing that's also 
critical in the health of the tree is trunk wounds. If there are trunk wounds of size, that's a concern, not necessarily for EAB, but for putting the money into those trees. Mm -hmm. Those trunk wounds are the ones that lead to fast accelerating other diseases like fungal diseases, which we would not want to put the three to $500 into the tree to treat it, to have a fungus come in and take it down a week later. It's, it's an environmental horror story for us. I mean, I, the commission dealt with, talked about this issue about two years ago. We saw those same maps that you've seen, whole blocks in my neighborhood up and down Johnson, Gorham, and East Mifflin, ash trees, hundreds of them. I, I think in my Aldermanic district, our Aldermanic district, there's something like a thousand trees. And a lot of those are going to be gone. The city doesn't have the staff or the money to, to save every tree, as Eric said. And for, for, for people who, uh, who are wondering whether or not, who want to be on the lookout for early signs of, of trouble, the symptoms and signs of emerald ash borer are a dieback of the crown, growth and offshoots of suckers at the bottom of the tree, bark splits with serpentine galleries, D-shaped exit holes, um, Larvae found in cut-down tree, and the really easy one to discern, increased woodpecker activity. We all love Woody, but if he shows up in your backyard, you've got a problem. I just learned some things. This is good. I'm always glad to come on this show. (laughs) Apparently, the the woodpecker is going after the larvae. That's a telltale sign that you got EAB. And I've heard lots of woodpecker activity in my neighborhood the last two months. That's how it was discovered at Doncaster Park. A forestry supervisor was driving to pick up his daughter. And uh, when he pulled up, he saw four woodpeckers on a single ash tree. Well. And said, hmm. Bad sign. Bad sign. And it's it's going to, I think the public needs to know it's going to take years to deal with this, at least five years or more. Mm -hmm. The replanting is going to take, so. Now, now, I'm not kidding. That's three blocks from my house. If they're three blocks away, are they moving into my neighborhood? Are they they coming down the road? They're they're, they're most likely there. Uh, They move in their natural state uh, at about a half a mile per year. And once again, they they infest all trees. If they find an ash, they'll 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 infest it and they'll mm-hmm. kill it. Um, uh, unabetted uh, and and unfettered, it, it it's destructive in a way that's really of even Dutch elm. It's the, you know talk to the International Site of Arboriculture. It's the most devastating one. Go to the, the mm-hmm. southeastern Michigan where they didn't know what they had until it was too late, and it was deforestation. Our plan is to mitigate. Some cities are taking out. Yeah. But same Minneapolis, Min- Min- St. Paul, Paul are removing all take, the trees. Taking all their ashes out. They're not even treating them. Now, now the <clears throat> USDA has an emerald ash borer biocontrol program that apparently we may be using that involves the use of stingless parasite wasps to attack the EAB larvae. Now, I'm deathly allergic to, to stinging insects, so I'm not really thrilled about even stingless wasps. Is this a program that we're using, and, and how effective is, is it going to be? Uh, no, we, the city of Madison is not participating okay. in, in that element of the program from the USDA. It's very experimental at this point anyway, mm-hmm. and, and we feel that um, our professional foresters really want to focus the city resources on uh, proven scientific, uh, scientifically proven methods, and that even includes when people talk to us about the more organic of the chemical treatments. <coughs> we're using a non-organic method. Uh, uh, triage is the, the, the brand name. Um, well, but play it's, on words there. But, but it's, yeah. Yeah, it's exactly, it's very <laughs> Painful, nice name. But, but, it's ve- but it's proven very effective, demonstrated for two years at a time. Uh, there's thought that it will be three or four years between treatments. And though we don't take lightly introducing non-organic chemicals, it's proven. 
to last and last for a longer period of time, which really allows us to treat more trees. And so that's our, our main treatment method and mitigation strategies to preemptively remove and try to contain zones as best we can, um, and then to treat the trees that are treatable to protect them. There's also an effort, um, and the Parks Foundation, I think, is involved in it, too, to, yep. to allow neighborhoods to save trees within, not just their own, on their own yeah. property, but uh, within parks. Did the Adopt-a-Park Tree program, what, what is involved in that? Yeah, the adopt a park tree. The current plan for the city of Madison, we and we do appreciate the council and mayor's support because they have added staff and funding, because treating any trees is not cheap. Treat cheap, and replanting them—that's the real commitment from our forestry staff that we wanted to do for this city and its and its love of trees. And the mayor and council have supported is to, when we do remove trees, we're replanting them with what uh, new trees. But but, but ash sorry. or no no what, definitely what? not ash. Okay. We haven't planted any ash in the city. We've okay. known this is coming for a while. Okay. Uh, we haven't planted an ash in the city in eight years, I believe. Marla Eddie, the forester, would tell me it might be nine, but it's okay. been a while. Uh, so we have never we have not been planting them. What now we're doing is using a very diversified planting list mm-hmm. that includes things for residents as well. So. Uh, ten years from now, they can dislike me a little less, hope that they remember this, that we are planting trees to create species diversity in the tree in the terrace that we haven't always planted there. Oaks, including oaks that maybe drop more uh, acorns than we would all find perfectly appealing, <coughs> some pod trees, those type of things. And that's a, uh, something that historically we wouldn't do because we consider that a nuisance. Now we see a truly diversified mm-hmm. urban street tree canopy as a way to protect and hedge against this happening again, because ash is by far the most common tree we have on the street currently. Well, can I get a silver maple if I need a replacement? I mean, no. No. I don't think they're, yeah, okay. no. We don't plant <laughs> silver maples. <laughs> just thought I'd ask. One uh, fell on my house in my neighbor's okay. backyard a couple okay. years ago. <laughs> um, speaking of pests, geese. The last two times we did, we did a parks department discussion with, with Kevin Brisky. Geese were a big deal. We talked about oiling the eggs and netting them and scaring them away and mm-hmm. making sure people didn't feed them and so on and so forth. And, and going through the minutes and, and the records of the, of the parks um, board, I'm not seeing as much discussion of geese. Have we solved the goose poop problem? We <laughs> I haven't heard anything in about a year. Uh, we had this big outcry. Was it three years ago when we first started the roundup? The city's done it, I think. Has it been three years, yep. Eric, or four? Um, the numbers of, of geese that were rounded up, uh, over a 1,000, I would guess. Yeah. I don't know, 1,500 maybe. And I see fewer fewer of them in my own neighborhood, for example, along the Hare River and in Tenney Park or at Warner. Um, I don't know if we've gotten a recent count, but I think people have accepted the idea that, you know, the trade-off of, Eliminating a few geese versus their kids sliding around in goose poop on soccer Sunday. Um, that's probably a good trade-off and that they were becoming a nuisance in a lot of parks. You know, you, you're on a bike path and all of a sudden your bike, you know, hits where the geese have been and you end up in the ditch or something. And so we, yeah. we have heard very few complaints. Yeah, I mean, the, the complaints have went down. I think the strategy that's a comprehensive strategy is, is working. Uh, now, it's not going to – there are still going to be um, – the migratory geese, so that there's that period of the year where it doesn't feel like it's working. Uh, but the, the resident geese, which is really the focus of our, our management program, uh, has declined. And, and I think it's 
partially related to the Roundup for certain, but all those other strategies, oiling eggs, harassment. Uh, we do harass geese regularly. We have a, a goosenator device, which is, um, it's an orange, looks like a wolf radio controlled <laughs> goosenator? thing. Yes, it's called the goosenator. Yes. You're more than welcome to come out and try it out sometime. You know, it dive bombs geese. Yeah, it's gonna, it's, it goes on water. <laughs> it's like a drone. <laughs> on water and land. It's, but it's, it's, and we've done some dog harassment. And the education component has been huge. At Vilas specifically, and I would commend the community, we had that as a real problem. You would always find people feeding the geese. That has been helped a lot by this little signage, <laughs> signage out there and our ranger program. So I, I would never say that we've solved that issue, but we've, we've mitigated it a lot. And I think it's come through a comprehensive, good public policy process that at times got a little bit contentious, and that's okay. Was it an, was the goose situation an annoyance or an actual potential health hazard? Uh, there, there's a definitive potential health hazard, especially related to beaches and playground areas and, and youth and soccer fields. Lagoons, you know, mm -hmm. the, like at Vilas <clears throat> and Tenney, the fecal matter. That yeah. So, so, so when when <clears throat> when beaches were potentially closed because of high fecal content, that that was primarily geese. Yes, if it's an E. coli based closure, it's almost always geese related. Okay. Well, I have a tip for you. Yeah. Totally different subject. We got about thirty seconds. Billy Nelson take a break. might be coming to Bree Stevens, Stevens Field. This okay, I'll be there. <laughs> you well, heard we're, it here working, first. we're working you on it. You heard it here first, folks. Well, I know his publicist, so maybe we can work something out. <laughs> uh, we're going to take a short pause for some important announcements. We're going to come back and talk more with David Walner and Eric Knepp from the Parks Commission, the Parks Board, and Parks Division, respectively. It's Access City Hall on the Mass and City Channel. We'll be right back. We hope you're here with us. A boy born in Joplin, Missouri, was fascinated by anything with wheels and a motor. The odds of him going on to fascinate millions with his talent? One in 260,000. The odds of this born racer having 157 career top 10 finishes in NASCAR? One in 125 billion. The odds of him winning both the Daytona 500 and the Brickyard 400 in the same year? One in 195 million. The odds of a child being diagnosed with autism? One in 110. I'm NASCAR driver Jamie McMurray, and my niece has autism. Learn more at AutismSpeaks.org slash signs. Oops. Yeah, sure. Let's go. Moms everywhere are finding ways to keep kids active and healthy. Works every time. Get ideas. Get involved. Get going at letsmove.gov. If you drive buzzed, it could cost you around $10,000. You'll face major legal fees, major fines, and steep insurance penalties. You could lose everything. 
Nothing kills a buzz like getting pulled over for buzz driving. Because buzz driving is drunk driving. Welcome back to the March episode of Access City Hall. I'm Stu Levitan. We're talking about the activities of the Madison Parks Division with its director. It's, uh, what's your proper job title? Uh, superintendent. superintendent. Park Superintendent Eric Nepp and the president of the Board of Parks Commissioners, a very impressive title, former Alder <laughs> David Walner. Be before that last break, David, you, were, you threw in a comment about our friend Willie Nelson perhaps coming to Bree Stevens. Is, 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 is Bree is Stevens going to turn into a uh, multimodal entertainment facility now? I think so. Um, Eric can tell you that since we put in the new artificial turf and made some lock, you know, improvements in locker rooms and all kinds of things, the city sunk millions of dollars into that field. Um, the big news recently is that, I think we're ready to announce this, aren't we, that East High will finally have a home field for football and for soccer, uh, for soccer starting this spring. Yep. Um, I think Eric has said that there will be a hundred events at that stadium, which used to get hardly any use at all. Uh, we're talking with um, possibly doing a, a promoter who wants the Frank. The Frank people are interested in bringing in a concert, at least one big concert this summer. Um, so it's going to be a really hop in place. We're trying to work out the parking. Noise issues that we get, um, you know, from old Central Park sessions, Fed the Marquette. There, there was quite a, a serious response this past summer over, you know, noise complaints. We've got to deal with that kind of thing. But the use of the facility should be phenomenal coming up. Uh, ultimate Frisbee, um, soccer, uh, rugby. There was a national rugby tournament there this past summer. And, again, the East High teams will be in there 25 to 30 uh, I think appearances yep. in the next year, which will again, this, you know, my son went to East High, and they have to ship their kids off to the, you know, the follow field to play football and soccer, and so it's going to be a great thing for that, you know, the near East Side neighborhoods, North Side neighborhoods, where their kids will finally have a, a home field. And the, the only thing I, I <coughs> advise you is that Willie Nelson don't go for artificial grass. <laughs> Just, just you might want to keep that in mind. How about Allison Krause? There you go. <laughs> um, speaking of noise complaints, noise complaints affect the market. Noise complaints of Central Park sessions. These are events. These are three or four nights during the summer, and and then later in the season. How can people complain about noise for a couple of hours on on a on, on a night in the summer? from an entertainment facility that was designed exactly for that purpose. What's we just wrong got, with these people? I think we just, I don't know if the whole commission did, I just got an email message from, from somebody, and you probably did too, um, about, well, this would be at Burr Jones, which is just across the yeah. river on East Wash, that field is going to be the new Let's Eat. Let's, the, eat, uh, let's, let's eat, eat Out Madison. And there, there are going to be some concerts, what, three nights of live music there, yep. and then possibly at Bree Stevens, the Central Park Sessions, Fete de Marquette. So there's been this kind of building turmoil about people saying, hey, uh, you've got the Majestic uh, doing their things up off the square on, on King Street at night. Uh, we hear where I live, we hear the university from Memorial Union, which flows across the lake. So I'm hearing more and more in the last year about those kinds of events, and sometimes they go at 11, 11 o'clock. At, at the Union, it's it's midnight before they shut down sometimes. And we, we dealt with it in the last two years, Orton Park. There was a, a lot, there were a large contingent of people uh, who live around Orton Park on the near east side of the Marquette neighborhood who were 
extremely upset that there were three nights of music there and the crowds. So the commission is trying to walk that line. I mean, um, you live in an urban environment, and these are great things for the city. Um, they're fr- usually free. You can bring your kids, the family. They bring, you know, the community, the community together. I go to almost all those events, as, as I think you do too, and Eric's, you know, Orton Park and the Sessions and the Fed to Marquette we love. Um, but there is that downside of the more you do those kinds of live events. Um, we've, we're talking to promoters about can you turn the bass down a little bit, you know, sound monitoring. We may have to get more serious about that. Um, there's always the issue of crowds, people urinating in my bushes. I can't get out of my driveway because of, you know. But in general, I think those events are what make Madison a great place to live. And um, the summers here, you know, who wants to vacation outside of Madison in the summer? There's so many things to do. We bike over to those events from six blocks away to the FET and the Central Park Sessions and now maybe Bree Stevens or Burr Jones. And that whole corridor, as you know, is getting much denser. You've got all these new people. And there's going to be, there'll be more conflicts probably. Well, just apply utilitarian analysis that the greatest good for the greatest number of people. And if 5,000 people are there enjoying the music and and five people complain, and there are five people complain, that's not a tough balance to to achieve. It hasn't been so far either. Um, let's talk about golf because at some point it'll get warm and, and people may want to golf. We have two controversies to address. Let, let's first talk about what happened the year after the former PGA pros, um, their positions were eliminated and, and, and the system was changed. There was a point in the fall of 2013 where the Parks Department spokeswoman said it's been a great year for the golf courses, revenue's up, everything's great. And then when the audit came out a little bit later, it was like, oh, it fell half a million dollars short and, and the revenue was down and our projections were off and it was not a great year in, in 2013. Mm-hmm. What happened to make it not a great year? What happened to make the department say or the division say it's been a great year and oops, it hasn't been? Um, I think the first thing is the the what happened after the uh, the timing of those conversations of evaluating where it was in time. Um, as we talked about earlier, weather uh, is a big factor in, in our business, uh, all of our businesses, all of our opera actions and, and services we provide. That uh, that fall was really bad, uh, re- really really bad actually as far as weather. November was essentially a non-revenue month at all. And not just non-profit, but non-revenue, uh, closed fairly early. Uh, and I think a lot of it has to do with how you look at 2013 and the, and the change. Uh, the change. If the goal was to provide the service of golf to the community, we um, had rounds were up. Total rounds played went up uh, for, and year over year. League retention rates were very high, and we added some new leagues. Uh, outing rates didn't fall as far as, as we were concerned they might um, because uncertainty with outings is a quick way to, to see a change. We've seen an uptick back. Uh, and then you also have to deal with, uh, we, we were forced, we, we had to deal with the fact that there were uh, cost overruns in certain areas that we hadn't anticipated uh, towards the middle of the year because we, we were making some investments, as we said we would. Um, we've invested in um, fiber optic which sounds like a silly investment, but at Odana Golf Course in one year, we spent $25,000 in 2013 
to put in fiber optic connections to the clubhouse. That doesn't just, and that was paid for by golf funds, by the way. It benefits those cross-country ski trail users today, too. But we made those investments uh, because it eliminated uh, a significant cost profile in operating going forward. But what is the fiber optic? So that oh, so for Internet and telephone, we're now connected to the city network. It allows us to uh, use uh, credit cards in the winter, which we used to not be able to do. Uh, free Wi-Fi. If you go out to the facility and you're golfing, you want to have a, a beverage after your round, you can pick up free city Wi-Fi at the facility. But you can't have a hard drink. You can, you can have uh, beer. And currently, you cannot have you cannot have a hard uh, hard liquor yeah. beverage. One one of the things that makes to me this whole, my parks involvement fascinating is the the pace of change. Um, I can think in the last uh, the public is doing different things in in, in our parks. Um, one of the things we've been talking about. Um, Slack lining. Who'd ever heard of slack lining five years ago? Disc golf. We, disc golf um, pickleball. You know, pickleball is a new sport for seniors like you and I. And Eric's not there yet, but um, we're we're going to throw pickles. Pick, <laughs> they have a racket, and you hit pickles up in the air, and you you catch them. And, you know. All right. But no, it's a new sport, and I've had several people on the streets come up to me and say, "I'd like pickleball lines over at Tenney Park." You redraw the li- stripe the lines yeah. to shrink the cord. You lower the net a little bit. Just and just driving a- you there, just making it up. And just- <laughs> I've seen it now. I finally <laughs> seen it. They can get you to do something. No, no, it's, it's a isn't it yeah. a new thing? Yeah, and slacklining, um, cyclocross. We've we've spent. I've gone to several meetings this last year on cyclocross racing in city parks, yeah. and we're trying to find spaces where these guys can go and. They jump barriers. Steeplechase with steep, a bike. Yeah, steeplechase with a bike. It's like, who'd ever heard of that five years ago? So, and bike golf, polo. And yeah. that leads into, segues into the issue of golf. Nationally, I think numbers are showing that fewer people are probably golfing. You know, the old, the, the theory that a lot of business was done on the golf course. Will the millennials and other generations go to the golf course to do business as a place to socialize? And we have four mm-hmm. courses and you know, um, there are a lot of uh, physical plant demands you know, that we need to uh, upkeep. It's really expensive to keep courses up. And will there be a decline in the future of golf for golf courses? There's less demand. So, is is the question of whether or not we need four golf courses something that that the golf subcommittee and the and the board of parks commissioners is or should be looking at? I, I think the, the you know our our perspective at Mad- in Madison Parks right now is we're in. Uh, you know, we have transitioned. We feel like this model gives us the most, the best opportunity to maintain a sustainable business model for the 72 holes at the four courses. Uh, I do think that, you know, should uh, we continue to struggle, should the marketplace not recover? Because there mm-hmm. has been the shedding of golfers. And in the Madison marketplace, a boom, a competition. A boom in golf courses. Yeah. Uh, 1985 is, you know, a golden year in the history of Madison Municipal Golf. Uh, you know, according to everybody who's around. In 1985, you know, the lines at Yahara were very large, and you know, but there was no U Ridge. Uh, the Oaks didn't exist, nor did Door Creek. Uh, the number of holes was uh, in Madison, in the Madison market, Dane County area, was maybe 180 fewer holes than today. So any business person can tell you that it's a challenge when you add a lot of supply and you decrease your demand uh, to make that work. I think we have a model that makes it possible, uh, and I think we should be kept and held to a standard of operating an enterprise that we've set up, yeah. 
and uh, our commission, I think, will be watching it very closely. Should that model not uh, not work over the you know the near term, uh, you know, it should demonstrate that it just isn't getting there. I think that conversation would be something that the yeah. decision makers should and would and could consider. I think almost every small town in Dane County now and the surrounding counties, you look at Stoughton, <coughs> Mount Horeb, New Glarus, um, they've all got golf courses. And I don't know how many total courses there are in the, you know, in the county, but all of those towns have their own golf course. And when, in the past, those people <coughs> might have come into Madison to play at Yehuri Hills or Odana and They've got their own course they can go to now, country club courses. So I think it's something we'll, we'll have to look at in the next five years. Where does that analysis start? Does that analysis start with, with the hard number of the two hard numbers of how much has supply increased and how much has demand dropped, and then you, you go from there? I mean, once you quantify that, is, is that where the analysis starts? And if so, then where then where is the next is the next question? Well, if we have a surplus of golf courses, mm-hmm. which is the one to get rid of? Mm-hmm. And and is that analysis based on what the what the most valuable land is? How does that analysis? I don't proceed? think. I mean, I don't think we're there yet. Um, you know, to make that consideration. But um, as Eric said, you know, the it's a numbers-driven game. If we're not taking in the revenue to keep the courses up. Um, at some stage, we may have to bite that bullet and yeah. make some changes. I don't yeah. know where it'll be, but yeah. and, and for and for <coughs> us, once again, I mean, we we're operating as an enterprise fund. It's our only enterprise fund, which means what? Uh, an enterprise fund means it's designed to be fully self-sufficient, not just operating, but capital. It pays the golf enterprise pays taxes uh, to the city of Madison. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and operating it that way, as long as that's the direction, which it has been for a long time. And I, and I don't foresee, uh, I don't speak for them, but the mayor, the council, or the board of park commissioners uh, looking to subsidize golf. Uh, it's done in some communities. But if it isn't going to be done here, which it hasn't been for a long time, then should we fail to you know, sub- sustain ourselves, uh, I think then the conversation does become one that is numbers-driven. Because if the business is to be a business and it's failing, I think you have to, Evaluate what makes the business not fail. Mm-hmm. We, we don't subsidize, or the city doesn't subsidize golf, but it does subsidize the botanical gardens. A yes. uh, million dollars, uh, 1.2 million into the Olbrick Botanical Gardens. The Olbrick Botanical Gardens, part of Olbrick Park, one of the wonders, mm-hmm. uh, a great legacy of Michael Olbrick, uh, one of one of the, the great uh, uh, men of Madison, Madison's history. Uh, David Ahrens thinks that we should be charging non-city residents, 12 and older, five dollars to visit the gardens. Would raise about a million dollars a year. It's, it's a, a hundred. Raise about a million dollars a year. It's a very popular uh, tourist destination. But 40% of the visitors are from outside the city. Is charging admission at the Oberg Botanical Gardens to non-city residents uh, something that should be considered and possibly implemented? I don't think the idea has any traction yet. Um, I, I've talked with David about it. I, I think the board, uh, the Oldbrook Botanical Society board, is not enthusiastic about it because they're worried they'll lose a certain number of visitors who don't, won't want to pay the fee. Um, you know, Oldbrook brings in what a quarter million visitors, two hundred ninety thousand last uh, year per year, and I think you know he's got to convince some of the other alders and staff out there it's it's a new idea um 
you know, whether it would be a million, seven, I've seen various figures, 700,000 a year. Um, I, I, I don't think there's a lot of enthusiasm for the idea yet. But, you know, if times get tougher and... Um, Eric, yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I'm a firm believer in, you know, trying to uh, insulate uh, the taxpayer uh, to the extent we can and through fees and revenues where appropriate. Um, I've, I've met with all their errands at multiple occasions and uh, shared some of the concerns we have at the staff level. Uh, the first and foremost is um, what is the impact on visitors? Because of the, in the Madison marketplace, a free <laughs> and accessible uh, opportunity like Old Brick uh, is not u unique. Uh, there are a lot of free. There's the Arboretum. Open, the Arboretum, Allen Centennial Gardens, the Chazen Museum, uh, the Historical the Museum, zoo. the Zoo. There's a tradition of this in Madison. Mm -hmm. So it goes beyond what other communities do. And I think we have to take a good look at what we are in Madison and how we work. Uh, because charging for something that gets 290,000 visitors and really sustains, I think, a large. It obviously helps the businesses in the Atwood area and that neighborhood to sustain, you know, the restaurants and those things. I mean, 290,000 visitors is a lot of people. Without further study, I would be concerned what the elasticity would be by introducing a fee, let alone the, the biggest concern we have at staff level uh, is, frankly, the, the concept of the administration of, have a, have of, a, of a fee-free system. Because we currently tickets. run that with volunteers, and they're very nice uh, folks, but I don't think that managing large amounts of cash and determining who is a resident and who is not is something they'd be equipped for. So, so the, the simple answer is for more people to join the Oberg Botanical Society and help underwrite it. Yeah. We are about out of time. We didn't get a chance to talk about dog parks or, uh, Good. or, 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 or other activities, <laughs> but we'll, we'll have to have a return engagement. Uh, one word answer, your, your single favorite thing about the Madison Parks, your single favorite activity. Oh, for me it's biking and hiking in the parks. Uh, I mean, playgrounds. Okay. You've got kids, younger well, kids. Well, yeah. everyone has their own favorite parts about the Madison Parks Division. We hope that you make good use of it. If you want more information, go to the City of Madison website. They've got a lot of information about the various activities and uh, uh, engagements you can participate in the Madison Parks. My thanks to David Walner, the President of the Board of Parks Commissioners, and Eric Neff, the Parks Superintendent. And on behalf of everyone here at the Madison City Channel, thank you for watching. I'm Stu Levitan. We'll be back next month with another edition of Access City Hall. Until then. <laughs>